Good morning, everybody. It is really good to have you all here. It's been great hearing Stan. I, I suppose what hit me when Stan was speaking was that what's been created is actually a better, deeper avenue into young people's lives through this. So, because 60 is awesome, but you don't get deep. So, God works, and we're so thankful that stuff like this, which causes so much disruption, actually creates new and better avenues. So, um, yeah, thank you so much, Dan. It was great to hear that. Um, so, for the last four weeks, and I have hand sanitizer all over me now. <laughs> For the last four weeks, we've been doing this series called Holy Habits. And we've been looking at these patterns and these habits that the, that the um, first followers of Jesus, by this time, a few thousand people just, were centering and focusing their lives around. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, and through these set of practices that are, practices that are described in Acts chapter 2, this community of believers became an abundant, overflowing, world-transforming group of people. And, and this list of 10 things in Acts chapter 2 is not an accidental or incidental part of that. And at the end of Acts chapter 2, it shows how transformative they are. It says, and the Lord added to their numbers yearly, decadely, weekly, no, daily, those who were being saved. And that's... Uh, sometimes we actually get blasé about that, but surely we want to see even yearly, weekly, monthly, but daily, people's lives, hope, renewal, life, abundance, faith. We want to see daily people who are being saved. And they were in the middle of this world-transforming time. Jesus just died and rose again. That was pretty fundamental in the history of the world. But we're in the middle of, of a severe time of change as well. And a time, like we've said every week, but I think this is important to say, where we have the chance to, but the reality, like Stan just explained to us, where we're also being forced to rethink our patterns, our behaviors, our habits, our um, practices, both public and, and private. And I suppose there's two realities to this, like anything in life. <laughs> we can either, either do this with purpose. God, I want you to change this. I want you to make this new. I want your better stuff. I want to follow you. I want to be part of your plan. Or we can do it passively, which me and probably most of us do most of the time. Whatever the circumstances are that are happening in our world, carry us along. And I'll go back to Ali's car, lightening up or a coffee cup on the dash saying, you're drifting, you're drifting, you're a middle-aged man. You're drifting. He is me now. So we can either do it actively, which is the harder but so much better, or it happens passively whether we like it or not. And I don't want to be the middle-aged man <laughs> that drifts. And I know none of us want to be. But there's a lot of um, people writing about this period right now. You can read a million articles on it. But there's also Christians writing about it. And here's a scary thing. What Christians are saying all over the world right now, time and time again, is that probably about 30% of churchgoers will drift from their faith 
and from the church in these days. That's what people are seeing and that's what people are predicting. It's anecdotal, that's not science, but it's just what people are seeing. And you know what the reality is? We're totally seeing that here in Balnehenge. Because anxiety, real things, fear, real things, distance, real things, are causing us to drift from what we held as true. Or you know what? Comforts causing us to drift from what we hold as true. Isn't it nice being in your pajamas? And there's lots of good reasons why people, why people are in their pajamas here on a Sunday morning, or there on a Sunday morning. But there's also comfort. And Netflix. And a coffee cup. None of us have coffee here. <laughs> um, so there's legitimate, absolutely, and let's face the facts, of course there is illegitimate reasons why people are drifting. And so I suppose the question as we start is, do we want to get um, carried along by the reality of our world, the circumstances we're in, or do we want to shape the drift or be purposed with the drift back towards God? And in the chap first chapter of Acts, it talks about how they purposed their lives to be focused around this life abundance overflow mission in Christ. And we talked about two of them so far. So we talked about Bible. And Caroline, thank you so much for reading that this morning. That was amazing. David didn't focus on the size of the giant. He focused on the size of his God. But that was also an amazing example of the tools that we have to read our Bible. There's so many amazing tools, but it also takes time making it, and it also takes saying, God, help me. So a practice of the early church was the dedication to the apostles' teaching or the Bible. And then the one we talked about last week was fellowship. And again, there's lots of legitimate and illegitimate reasons why we're drifting from fellowship. And there's all sorts of, as Stan just told us, creative new ways we can engage in fellowship. But are we talking with, praying with, worshiping with, studying with, discussing with, having purposed conversations of faith and life in Christ and Jesus with our fellow believers? Whatever that looks like in this COVID age, Paul, I need to do that better and now. Are we dedicated to to fellowship. And then the next habit, and we have seven more after this, but this is a good one. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I brought these up for a reason. And to fellowship. And to the breaking of bread. So this week's holy habit is the breaking of, of bread. And that's maybe not a, a normal habit of life that we think of, but this one's so important. And it made me think of a, a moment in my life this week, a, a really short moment, about 25 years ago, that had a profound impact on my uh, view of my parents, especially, but on my view of, well, you'll see. So 25 years ago, for those of you who are young, older than some of you, when I was in university... Uh, I, I, I went to university for five years for a four-year degree. That's the way to do it. Uh, because I worked full-time for a chunk of it. I took student loans, but also, amazingly, my parents helped me to pay for some of it. 
And so I think this was my second year of university, and I was, it must have been going back like at the start of term, because I needed to pay my fees. And so, so to explain the context, I packed my car and had to drive to my dad's office. We lived at a Christian camp. And on Sundays, that's when people are leaving. So my dad was in his office doing all that stuff. And remember, my car is packed. I drive down to my dad's office, and I say, Dad, it's the start of uni. I'm you know, going to be away for a few weeks now, and fees need to be paid. So... Um, can you help? <laughs> and he already knew this, and I, and I don't remember the exact context. I don't know if we had the invoice or we just knew the amount, but my dad just wrote me a check, handed it to me and said, thank, or he said, you know, see you in a few weeks. Have a great time. And I said, thanks, Dad. See you in a few weeks. We're a really emotional family. <laughs> that's, that's, that's as gushy as it gets. And so I took it and left and drove. And, and, but what I remember was, I'm not sure if it was in the car right then, or it was when, when I got to university, probably the next day at, at the bursar's office or the registrar's office, but I remember looking at this check that literally, and some of you parents have done this, and some of you kids have received this, but this check that literally caught, took my dad 20 seconds to write, and a second to hand to me, and have a great few weeks, see you in a bit. And I took it, thanks dad, see you in a few weeks. That check for at least a few thousand dollars probably cost my dad a month's work. And that hit me as I was looking at this little check. It never hit me like that before. So um, a month's work. So that's 160, realistically 180, 200 hundred hours of work. Thanks, Dad. See you in a few weeks. And I remember, like still today, this is 25 years ago, being blown away by the reality of the cost and the sacrifice and the care that parents have for us. And money's the least of it. If your parents never pay for university, that is the least of it, although it is 200 hours of work. But the care and the input that our parents put into us. And when you're a kid, or a teenager, or a young adult, or even when you're an, adi- uh, an adult sometimes. Thanks, Dad. See you in a few weeks. And that story came flooding back to me this week as I thought about this reality of the breaking of bread that we're about to do. Because how realistically, how similar is that to how we treat this bread and wine or juice that we take? It's it's nice. See you in a few weeks, Jesus. And we know, we know it's so much more than that. But like this check, you know, that almost looks like or feels like nothing, and we, t- we just get into this habit as if it's nothing. But we know 
that the reality is that Jesus, the Son of God, left perfect peace and joy and relationship and perfect life abundance with his father none of this and he as as the uh, message that he moved into our neighborhood who the skid row end of town does not even begin to describe the the difference between his neighborhood and our neighborhood and he and he moved into it as a, as a baby who was absolutely helpless, absolutely vulnerable, completely poor. And we know this story, but he moved into it as a baby that would become a refugee almost instantly. He would live quite a bit of his childhood life as a refugee. And then he'd grow up as a normal boy, but he'd grow up to become a man who would serve who would sacrifice, who would love, who would heal the messiest, most difficult, broken people in his world. That's the life. And then just at his prime, tons of people love him, but tons of people also hate him. He's arrested like a criminal. This is the son of God. And he's put on trial like a criminal and he's spat on and he's mocked and he's whipped and a crown of thorns are shoved on his head. I always think, how does the son of God put up with this? And then he is forced to drag a cross up a hill and he's helped by Joseph of Arimathea, but he's also dragging this cross up a hill only so the Roman soldiers can nail him to this thing that he's dragged up the hill and lift him up into a hole that he's sunk into so he can hang on it and suffocate to death. And like the passion of the Christ, that seems, it is horrific. But the crazy thing is that was even the least of it for him. Because what the Bible actually said is that God took all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our brokenness, all of our anger, all of our hate, all of our sin, all of our brokenness, and put it on the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. Second Corinthians 5.21 says this. And I love how succinctly it powerfully says this. God made him who had no sin... To be sin. Think of the worst of your life. The worst thoughts. The worst words. The worst deeds. The worst things done to you and against you. The worst of the news. To be come sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God. And I have said lots of times, thanks Jesus.
See you next week. See you in a couple weeks. And that's the craziness of this transaction. But it says the first followers of Jesus devoted themselves to this habit. Regularly and in all sorts of different ways. In ways like this, they gathered in big groups, but also in small groups, in home groups, in homes with two people. They devoted themselves, but not even the regularity. They devoted themselves to the reality of this habit. So, I suppose what I would love to do this morning is, how do we do this now with devotion? And how do we do this now when we have these things in our laps that are more different from my father's love than a tiny piece of paper that he, that he wrote a check? But we have these tiny little plastic cups with a wafer on the top. So what I would love you to do And Holy Spirit, help open our hearts to devotion to this, to the reality of this, to the power of this, to the cost of this, to the hope of this, to the life of this. Jesus, I pray. Peel the lid. These are recyclable, by the way. I would love you to take the wafer in one hand. And the cup in the other. And I'm just reminded of sitting with my dad's check that cost him 200 hours. And you know what my dad would say? That's nothing. That is not even worth comparing to this. And just look at it. And I want to read to you slowly the prophecy that was written about what Jesus would do 500 years before he came. Just look at it. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender green shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. Cost. A man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. But surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings. And yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. 
he was pierced for your and my transgressions. He was crushed for yours and my iniquity. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And we can all say yes, Lord, to that. We know it. Each of us has turned to our own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Just look at that. And God, help us to take in the gravity and the beauty of it. And then 500 years after that prophecy was written, on the very night before all this was about to happen, we know also on the same night that the Jews celebrated this Passover meal that celebrated that 1,500 years ago God had, had saved them from Egypt and from slavery. And so on the night they celebrated that and on the night before Jesus knew what he was about to go through, he gave his friends this incredibly simple yet unbelievably profound tool to remember to celebrate, to proclaim, and to tell others, this is it. And Luke records it in chapter 22. He said, he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it, giving, and he gave it to them saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And as we take it, I'd love you to say one thing under your breath or in your head. Lord Jesus, I take you as the bread of my life. in the same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you and I'd love you to say this Lord Jesus how can I ever thank you for your blood that paid and that covered and that cleansed all of my sins. And God, help us not to walk away from the attitude of this with, thanks Jesus, see, see in a few weeks.
Acts 2, 46 says, day by day, as they spent much time together, they broke bread even at their homes. And I suppose my prayer of this habit, it's not like fellowship, but it's not like Bible. We do it less regularly. Although, can we figure out ways to do it maybe more regularly in home groups or with friends? But when we come, can we sit and grasp and ask God for that focus and that devotion to the cost and the beauty of this holy, holiest of habits? I just want to read a couple quotes for you as I finish. One is by, I read one last week as well, by the guy Andrew Roberts who wrote the book Holy Habits, who were sort of loosely framing this around. And he said, when we stretch out our hands to receive the bread and the cup, we are all the same, every single one of us. Sinners transformed by grace. And then this is from the writings of the Methodist Church. The nourishment we receive is not for ourselves alone, but in order that God may empower us to go out into the world, to find out what he is doing there and join in. God, yeah. Thank you. We love you. Help us to love you more. And help us to live out of your life and strength and out of this gift. I pray in Jesus' name.